The following audio is from First Hamilton Christian Reformed Church, where our vision is to be transformed by the gospel so that we can participate with God in his work of renewing all things in Christ. For more information about First Hamilton, visit www.firsthamilton.ca. So this morning we will be spending time in uh, Psalm 126 as well as Isaiah 43. So uh, if you want, you can keep both of those open as we'll be moving through both those texts. Now I titled this morning's sermon, Are We There Yet? In the hopes that it would conjure up an image of your most recent road trip that perhaps you took with your kids over March break. And as you were making the long drive south, you may have heard the, Are We There Yet? This was a slightly common though entirely forbidden phrase. On our road trips as kids, we made the trek down to Florida a number of times where my parents would pile myself and my three sisters into our minivan for the long stretches of journey. But we had to be prepared. Back then, we didn't have smartphones, so they packed a 13-inch TV into the back, plugged into the cigarette lighter, and this TV was deeper than it was wide. The built-in VHS. That's some pretty cool tech. Or in order to pass the time, we would listen to the Chronicles of Narnia as portrayed by the BBC Radio Theatre. That was always a favorite, and one of the greatest things about a road trip was an opportunity to listen to all seven books. Now, the reason that we as kids might have asked the are we there yet question is because we really didn't know when we actually arrived. We had no way to mark the passage of time, no way to understand the mile markers or to look at the topography of the land and to think as we're driving through the Appalachian Mountains, well, this must be Florida, right? We've been in the car for a while. No, you're just in the Virginias. You've only started. Because it asks a question of anticipation, the desire to arrive at the end goal, wanting to just get the uncomfortable journey over. Are we there yet because I want to get out of the car? I want to stop traveling. My sister won't stop looking at me. And so this morning, we come into the Psalms, into the season of Lent. The season of Lent is a time of waiting, of preparation, of anticipation, longing to arrive at Easter, but understanding that it takes us a good number of Sundays to get there and that there's a lot of thinking and work to do. And especially as we come into Holy Week next week, there's something to reflect on each and every day, and we might want to rush to get to Easter, but it's important to take a moment, stop in the journey, and not ask that question of, are we there yet, incessantly? Now, Psalm 126 today is from a collection of psalms known as the Psalms of Ascent, and these would have been sung as pilgrims made their way to Jerusalem, which was up on a hill, so it required a bit of climbing. And as they would have traveled to Jerusalem for something, a festival, they would have sung these songs to pass the time, but also to prepare their hearts for the celebration that would await them, particularly the Passover, which drew the largest crowds. And these psalms, this collection of psalms contains both lament, but also celebration and expectation, as imaged in Psalm 126 today. For the first three verses are a great celebration. They have a euphoric nature to them, celebrating God who has restored the fortunes of Zion, Zion being that holy city of Jerusalem. Our mouths were filled with laughter, songs of joy. It's something so exciting. The anticipation of arriving in Jerusalem, this great city, this destination 
of all Jews. Something truly great and awesome to behold, the temple where God's presence dwelt among his people. Something that everyone would recognize, even if you weren't party to the Jewish faith or a member of the tribes of Israel. It says it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things to them. This city was something so awesome and fantastic that everyone had to pay attention to it, that it was a hustle and bustle of religious life that no one could see anything but the majesty of God. And yet, we're not quite there yet, this psalm reminds us. The work is not yet done. For amidst this celebration of God restoring the fortunes, in verse 4 it says, Restore our fortunes, Lord. As Eugene Peterson put it, do it again. Because as the Jews would have arrived at the city of Jerusalem and walked through the countryside, they would have recognized that they were not exactly where they wanted to be. Armed escorts of Roman soldiers, right next to the temple, the great fortress Antonia, a reminder that they were not truly free to live and worship as they saw fit, that God was not reigning supreme as they would have expected it, but that Caesar was ruling these lands. Restore our fortunes. Do it again, God. Redeem us from our oppression. And this is the theme that the people of Jesus' day would have keenly felt. A theme that we see them express so intensely on Palm Sunday next week. Because they feel like they're in a desert wasteland. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. The Negev was in the south of Judah. It was a desert land, arid, dry. Not the kind of place to set up a town and a city. For the wells would have to be deep and farming would be impossible. And so they're expressing a sense that they are in a spiritual and political wasteland and that they desire transformation, restoring our fortunes. They want their state to be transformed, a common theme in the Psalms and the prophets, to be brought out of slavery and servitude and lifted up to thriving and flourishing. They want to be changed from sadness and struggle to gladness and flourishing. For if we look around at our desert cities now, such as Las Vegas or Dubai, these are massive enterprises that require incredible amounts of water and money to be pumped into them to sustain these cities. They don't belong where they are and certainly not at the size that they exist at. It is nothing short of miraculous that these cities exist, a marvel of engineering and ingenuity, but also so precarious because if something goes wrong with their supply chain and their water systems, their entire ecosystem will collapse. It's a miracle they exist, and it's partly miraculous that they continue to this day. It is this theme of miraculous change that Isaiah picks up on. And so you can turn with me to Isaiah 43. And Isaiah taps into the miraculous memory of the people. He starts in verse 16. It says, this is what the Lord says, he who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out chariots and horses and armies and reinforcements together, and they lay there, never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. Where Isaiah is reflecting back on the Exodus, the crossing of the Red Sea, that miraculous moment where God first brought his people out of slavery. For 400 years, the Israelites languished under the thumb of the Egyptians, 
And God heard their cries and stepped in and brought them out in the most spectacular fashion imaginable. Something beyond comprehension. And so Isaiah says, remember, pay attention. Because just like the Psalms, this passage in Isaiah would be speaking to those people who would be waiting for renewal again. For people in exile, living in their land but not feeling at home, saying, God, redeem us again. Liberate us again. We know you've done it before. Do it again. We know we're not there yet. And yet, in that moment of remembrance, Isaiah sort of flips the script in an unexpected way that we don't often see in Scripture. He says, forget the former things, do not dwell on the past. And we have to ask ourselves, what exactly is he asking us to forget? The former things, the creation of the worlds? Perhaps forget about the exodus that he just talked about. Or maybe about the judgment that God passed down on Israel and Judah, which Isaiah chronicles in chapters 1 to 39. We're not entirely sure, and when I say we, most of the commentators I read, exactly what he is talking about, because it goes against the grain of the Old Testament, which is so much about remembering God, so much about remembering what he has done in our lives. For how can we ask him to do it again if we don't remember what he did in the first place? And perhaps Isaiah is pushing them to remember, but not in a nostalgic sense, a desire to go back to the good old days when TVs were bigger and required a crane to move. Perhaps it's not so much about remembering what you enjoyed about the past and looking at it with rose-colored glasses, but remembering who God is and what he has done. Because Isaiah pushes on. He says, do not dwell on the past. Do not live in those former days because God says he's doing a new thing. I'm making a way in the wilderness, streams in the wasteland. Isaiah, again, picks up on this desert wilderness theme, this idea of living in a dry, dusty, arid place where you have to do all you can just to make it from one day to the next. Every day a struggle. But in this landscape, God makes things new. He transforms this ecosystem to something that thrives. And it affects not just humanity, but it affects all of creation. For even the wild animals honor me, the jackals and the owls, because I provided water in the wilderness. This is something beyond just a political renewal, just a spiritual renewal. This is cosmic in scope. Nothing in creation is going to be untouched by the new thing that God is doing. And fundamentally, it is a work of God. For the transformation of land is a familiar concept to many of us of a Dutch background. Because if you want more land, well, you just make it. You pump out the seawater, you put up the dikes. You can transform the land at will. And they're pretty good at it. But Isaiah reminds us that true transformation, transformation that lasts, transformation that is not at risk of all crumbling down should your water systems fail, should your dikes burst and all your work be undone, that a work of God is the only thing that will endure, that a work of God is the only thing that will stand the test of time and will not be destroyed. 
And so we are called to remember the past, but to remember the past in a way that is helpful, that helps us understand our present situation and anticipate the future. Do not dwell on it for nostalgia and to look back, because the Exodus helps us understand Jesus' work. It helps us to understand the sacrifice that is to come. Because if we did not remember the Passover lamb, did not remember the way that God saved his people from slavery, then the imagery at the table might be a little bit lost. For we wouldn't understand exactly why the authors refer to Jesus as the Passover lamb. That lamb that was sacrificed so that death would pass over the Israelites and that they would be brought into new life. Remembering the past, remembering what God has done helps us better understand the work of Christ both in the past and the present. Remembering the past also helps us to mark the passage of time, to know exactly how far we've come, but also to know that we haven't quite arrived yet, that we're not exactly in the promised land as the Israelites would have hoped. Right, that if we are going to Florida, we don't ask, are we there yet, while winding through the Appalachian Mountains in Virginia, because we understand the topography of the land and know that Florida is not mountainous, so too we look around our world and know we are not there. We look at environmental degradation, and particularly the refugee crisis, the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. We look around and it would be foolish for someone to say, have we arrived in the new kingdom? Because we look around and we see the work is not yet done. We are not there. But just as we know we are not there, what is our destination? Where are we going? Because we're not going back to something that once was. We don't go down to Florida for a vacation so that we can sit by the waters of Lake Ontario on a snowy April day. We go for something better than what we have, for an opportunity to live differently. And so as we look ahead to where we are going, as we're trying to figure out whether or not we've arrived, we know it's not going to be the same as it once was. Things are going to be different in the future. This much is promised. We know that we are not going back because God does not go back in time. He always moves his plan forward. And so I want to ask you the question, now that we are coming out of the pandemic, after two years of different, two years of change, two years of moving forward in a direction we didn't think we would have to move forward in, are we going to continue to move forward with God or are we just trying to get back to normal? trying to get back to the way things were in February of 2020? Are we just trying to return because it's comfortable, because we know, because we're unsure of what is ahead? Instead, we should ask ourselves the question of what is God doing now? And in order to ask ourselves what God is doing now, we need to take a moment and look back on the last two years of the pandemic and say, what did God do while we were shut down? Because while we may not have been holding church in person, our children and youth ministries may have been on hold or in a much reduced capacity, it did not mean that God's mission was stopped and stalled. That'd be horribly arrogant if we thought that because we weren't moving forward that God was just going to sit by and wait. See, I am doing a new thing. That word is as much for us today as it was for them back in the exilic days in the days of Jesus, God is constantly and consistently bringing newness. So this week, 
as we prepare to enter into Holy Week, as we prepare to enter into Easter, ask yourselves, what is the new thing that you see God doing in your life, in your family, here at First Hamilton, in our city, our country, in our world? Ask us, what is different? And what is God calling us to do that is different? Where are those patches of wilderness that we didn't think it was possible to do any kind of ministry in that we are starting to see those streams of water trickle in, that new life is coming to places that we didn't know it was possible? And to ask ourselves, how do we participate? Because we don't drive the change in this world as much as we want to think that we do, but rather we just participate in what God has already done to humble ourselves to come alongside the new thing and to stop trying to force it in our own vision. And so as we reflect on this new thing, because it's going to be different for each and every one of us, we find encouragement at the table. Because this was a new thing that God did, a thing different than any way he had acted before in history by sending his son Jesus to die on a cross for us. And so I want to read again from that passage in Philippians that Don and Edward read for us as an encouragement to come forward to this table with an expectation that God is doing something new, that we are not moving backwards, that we are certainly not there yet, but going forwards. So join me here in Philippians chapter 3, I'll start reading in verse 17, where Paul writes and says, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain in Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own coming from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Paul is pushing against the things of the past. He's not going back. Everything he gained prior to knowing Jesus, he says it's garbage. He's not going back to that. He's pressing forward. He's not going back to the law, but clinging to that faith in Christ, for that righteousness comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of resurrection, to participate in his sufferings and become like him in his death, so that somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. Not that I've already obtained it, or have already arrived at my goal. We are still not there. But I press on to take hold of that which Christ took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward to Christ Jesus. So brothers and sisters, as we come to the table, forget everything that has come before and rely on what God is doing in your life now with hopeful expectation that we get to see what he is going to continue to do, knowing that what it's going to be is amazing. Let's be forward-looking ahead Christians not consistently wondering and worrying about the journey and are we there yet, but knowing that when we do arrive, it's going to be fantastic. And let's go on this journey together. Let us pray.
Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we do have remembrance of history, that time and time again throughout all the days of your people, you have once again called them time and time again back to repentance, back to new life, back to hope. And we thank you that you do that in each and every one of our lives, that it's something personal, something communal, and something cosmic. Father, forgive us for when we look back, yearning for the places that we have left behind, thinking it was better then, and not paying attention to what you are doing now. Help us to not get mired down in our frustrations of the journey, crying out, can we not just be there yet? But that our desires to be there come from a place of expectation and hope of newness. Heavenly Father, as we come to the table, a place of remembrance. May we remember the sacrifice of Jesus Christ in a way that spurs us forward to new things. In your name, amen.